Hello, this is John Huary, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. This is part two of a three-part special featuring world-renowned seismologist and disaster expert, Dr. Lucy Jones, in which we discuss the intersection of scientific research and community activation. In this part, Lucy and I continue our conversation about the nature of resilience and how she and I have worked with elected officials and decision makers to build a more resilient California. Let's talk about resilience. What is resilience and how can it make a community less susceptible to a disaster? Resilience is the ability to, to pull back after a disruption. Right? And there's some basic things. One thing is if you've prevented damage in the disaster, you have less to pull back from. That's a really big piece. We use the word mitigation, which is a pretty nerdy word, but I, I don't know another one for that. Another one part of it is uh, that you, you've got connections with people. I mean, sometimes when I, you know, resilience, we take the word from sort of feeling of like elasticity, the ability to rebound. Elasticity happens because of connections, right? And it's sort of like, I, I sometimes sort of have this sort of geek physics model of, of, of invisible strands of, of rubber between people. That connection between people gives us a structure that allows us to bounce back more quickly. And um, resilience is, is being able to handle the extreme events of your system and still be sustainable. And so in 2014, or 2013, I guess, I guess it, was, it was. 2013. We went to meet with the newly elected mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Uh, we had spent, you and I had spent time working with previous mayors <laughs> to build resilience in their staff and their deputy mayors and their department heads uh, through a number of partnerships we created. But then there was something happened there in 2014 where, 2013 into 2014, where you made a, you were again, again, willing to use yourself. Um, and I was able to make some connections to arrange a meeting. It took six months. Oh, no, no, four months. Four he was months. elected July 1st. I'm not sure quite when you started. We met in October. I was actually looking back at some stuff and we actually, they, they, we were getting put off because he was busy, right? right? Newly elected. And newly elected. And we... And we, um, and we only said, I think the mayor should talk to Lucy. I don't think we said anything besides that. We didn't say anything besides that. Um, but I, I noticed that we did say at some point, you know, ShakeOut is coming in October. And it would be really good if he's had a chance to connect on this issue before we get all of that public attention. Right. And because of that then... This, the meeting was scheduled for two days before the shakeout earthquake. And, um, and we were in a government shutdown, and I wasn't supposed to go do this. Shh, shh. Uh, <laughs> it all comes out on the, all, on the Community Intelligence Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I went as a private citizen. You did. And I made a point of saying that this was as a private citizen. And what we did is we took them a picture of what was going on in San Francisco at the time. Right. And the LA Times had just done their article but we didn't know we were going to get that. Right. That, that was serendipity. That was. Right? That was. Two days before the meeting, the LA Times ran this big expose on concrete buildings that they'd been working on for two years. More than that. I remember it, yeah. it, it had been more than that. Ron Lynn had started that effort, I think, four years prior. I mean, it was just yeah. this long process to get it right. I mean, talk about dedication of the media. Yeah. And, that, and it, yeah, that's a place where the media has really made a difference. And we had this incredible luck that our meeting that had been scheduled for a month 
came out two days before. Of course, we scheduled the meeting because of the shakeout, right. and I think and they scheduled the, the article. The, the article because of the shakeout, and uh, which is the ongoing power of the shakeout. Right. Um, and so it had the mayor and the deputy mayor primed to listen to us. Um, we also had this example that San Francisco was trying to figure out how to come together a community. They'd managed a couple of things. They just passed their first software story ordinance. And I'm gonna interrupt you there. I think one of the things that made it unique in this circumstance is that, do you remember the first five minutes or maybe even more of the meeting had nothing to do with earthquakes? Before we actually like sat down, like I think somebody said, okay, Mr. Mayor, we need to talk about this. You and he were talking about music? Well, he has a piano in his office. Turns out that he plays piano a lot. And I play uh, classical music a lot. And we sat and talked about music and how much more fun it is. We both were enjoying that, I think, more than the earthquake discussion. Absolutely, but I think what, what's really interesting about that, just sitting there and watching that, is that you guys connected. He knew who oh. you were, you who knew he was, but had never really connected. And in that few moments around music, you found a commonality that allowed everything else that either of you said to be viewed through a more positive lens. Oh. Okay. And, and, <laughs> right, and I sort of go, well, whatever. <laughs> but and you, you make use of that. You help me see that stuff. Right. right. But, I, but I think we capitalize on that. And that, yeah. that even in, I think, future conversations, there was a little bit of reference to music until the relationship had evolved to more of a, a trusted True. scientific advisor to the elected official. Right. So, so we have the music conversation. You bring up San Francisco. We're sitting there. And there's actually, it's the deputy mayor, the mayor. Other staff. I feel like there was like six or seven people in there the room. There were. I can't remember who they all all were at this point. And um, we were. You know, don't we want to be able to do as well as San Francisco? And he's like, Well, I want to. Yes, that sounds like a great idea. But I'm not willing to take ten years. I want it in one. Right. And I remember going. Oh, there's a reason it takes ten years. This is hard work. Right. <laughs> um, and it was actually after we left there, and this was sort of mulling around. How could we get it to work? That I realized. I thought. It probably wouldn't work if I didn't really throw myself into it. Um, I'm a federal employee. But what part of the process, I had managed to reach a point where I got to do a lot of what I wanted within the government. <laughs> I went to my boss and proposed that I go work with LA to do this as a USGS employee, that we call this a ex scientific experiment. It's the next step in how do we get the science used. And I was able, because I had an innovative boss, get him to, to get behind me. We went back to the mayor's office and proposed this. They jumped on it because they were getting me for free. And this being, what was the? All right, so that we, a technical assistance agreement that the USGS would put up my time, three quarters of my time for a year. The mayor would put up equivalent staff time to create a resilience plan for the city. Related to earthquakes. Related to earthquakes. It was so, how to address our earthquake issues. And actually, didn't it? Come specifically from the shakeout, the idea that it would carry on, if I recall correctly, it would carry on the issues raised in the shakeout that the city had purview over. Yes, we re well, we definitely referenced the right. shakeout, and it, it, the shakeout scenario became a big piece of it. Right. As I negotiated it with the deputy mayor, that to me was one of my political education points was we cannot say we're going to make, we're going to deal with the earthquake issue because we can't solve the earthquake issue. Who said this? This was uh, the deputy mayor for public okay. safety. And she said, we have to define the agreement in a way that we know that we can look successful. Mm. So instead of saying, let's solve the earthquake problem, let's say we are going to address the problem around vulnerable buildings. 
and and then we know we can solve we, we can we know what the things that we can do for this and I said I ain't willing to just do the buildings because if you just do the buildings and you don't have any water going into those buildings you aren't you, you haven't gotten anywhere so and 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 actually they didn't want it to be just buildings because they didn't want it to look like they were just responding to the kinds so we came up with three areas um, the vulnerable buildings that uh, water the vulnerability of the water system and issues around telecommunications and that was a um, sort of a dice we knew we had issues with the electric system we weren't sure at all that we were going to be able to accomplish really moving forward on that and by saying the telecommunication system you have to have electricity for that but it gave us other things that we could do so we knew that we would be able to say here's a thing that we've done to succeed in this area so it was a big political education for me of how to take a problem define it in a way that you know you can look successful while giving yourself the opportunity to really try to solve the problem. I mean, we didn't say, we didn't go into this year-long project saying we're going to do XYZ. We, we had XYZ in our pockets knowing that we could at least do those, but we really had the opportunity to do more. Um, and it was a real insight for me how to, because as a scientist it feels like there's the right answer and the wrong answer, or you get something done or you don't get something done. and on the, in the more political realm, there's how to look successful. And you can't be successful unless you look successful. This isn't just PR, it's right. If we didn't look successful, it wasn't gonna move forward. And it wasn't, you weren't doing this for political reasons. That's what, the, you know, though you right. had the education, you had this experience and you had me there with you to help. Right. Uh, I remember oh, you helped me with so many political but oh really that's an issue oh okay <laughs> what you say and what you don't the the work we did was really around bringing the community on because you can't operate in the ivory tower and you know LA City Hall is the epitome of ivory tower it's a political ivory tower yeah. and then Caltech is your scientific ivory right. tower and the community is left out of both of them or often is and yeah that was the other part of it there, I remember some point at which they're saying we can't we need to know what we're going to um, be saying before we talk with people because you know, once we talk with them, they're going to be demanding answers. That's the political experience. And I was like, but how do we know what we're going to say until we've talked with them? Because right. they've got to be part of the answer. So that, that was a tension that went along all the way through. How do we bring the community in? Um, how do you say, here's the problem, help us find a solution right. instead of here's the problem, here's the solution. So we set up meetings, uh, or rather, we were requested. Uh, to have meetings with a number of leading organizations, and I remember we were spending hours with the like the um, the LA Conservancy, the LA Conservancy. Yes, thank you. I don't know, three or four or five meetings yeah. with those people. There was the, apartment owners of Greater Los Angeles, the Urban Land Institute, the Central City Association, and on and on, mm -hmm. just leaders across the region, um, both in personal conversation mm -hmm. and then on the phone, just answering questions to get buy-in and get. Right. To see that there is a solution that can be found that serves us, that there's more at stake by not doing something than by trying to do something. And there were, there were a bunch of things that came out of that. I mean, one of them was that when we then finally came up with a proposal, the people we'd met with could see their fingerprints on it. Maybe it was something really small. Mostly we're doing something they really weren't sure they wanted, but they could see that we'd listened to something from them. And that fingerprint issue, I think, was huge in getting the buy-in for the project. Um, 
and, and it involved just lots and lots of time. You know, this, the city kept track of my meetings. There were 130 in those 10 months. Right. Working with community is not fast. It's not fast and it's not, it's, it's not smooth. Right. <laughs> it's not easy. Um, it's very different from the scientific process where you sit alone in front of a computer terminal for six months. Uh, and this is instead out there talking with people and going back and going back and listening. It's and iterative. Iter yeah, the iterative part. And so what ended up coming? 10 months in the office, or, or 11 months, whatever it is. Yeah. What's the result? The result was a plan, resilience by design. And, and, and the plan itself was not the law. Right. That was. This is the mayor saying, here is my recommendation for what the city should do. There were 18 recommendations across these three areas. So we had the X, Y, and Z that had been in our pockets, and then we had A through P as well, right? We had a lot of different things that went on. And um, the mayor released this, um, I was like December 8th, and, um, and had most of these stakeholders of the city, the, 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 the moneyed interests, the, the real estate interests were there with them saying, yes, we need to do this. So through this process, we had helped the larger community understand that this wasn't just about whether or not they were gonna be made to spend money on their building. It was about everybody else having to spend money on their building, and we now have a more resilient city that they're not going to then lose their business because the city can't function after the event. Um, of those 18 recommendations, five of them required city council ordinances, and, and over the next almost a year that it took to get all of those done, every one of them passed unanimously once it finally got down to it because we had already done the work of bringing all the stakeholders together, together and getting them behind it. So we didn't have somebody coming out afterwards and saying, no, you shouldn't do this. Um, I think it's a big part of, of what happened here was that time spent just talking to people. And I'd say that listening is the other half of it. You talk, but you also have to listen, almost more so. Absolutely more so. Um, and so that was the year of 2014, and then in 2015, you went back to the USGS. I went back to the USGS and went, oh. <laughs> um, I, partly it's, I mean, I've, I've written, I've been on a couple of papers since, since that time. Um, and there's, there's still times that those research questions can be really engaging, they're a very specific thing. But I found that getting the science used seemed more significant. Not because it's inherently more important, but it's as important and nobody is doing it. That year after the mayor's office, you were still a federal employee. Right. How did you feel when you weren't fully engaged with the public the way that you had been the year before? Um, partly I was more rested. <laughs> <laughs> but after I got over the fatigue, I started going, this isn't enough. I. Um, to the degree that I'm still gonna make a difference with what's left of my career. This is a place that needs the work and nobody else is doing it. And um, that if I can find a way to do it that doesn't completely exhaust me, I'd rather be in that space and, and, and start helping other scientists to do it. I think that's the other thing that happened to people at, at, towards the end of your careers is wanting a legacy, wanting to see what happens. and. You know, when I started in science, the whole idea of working with the community was sort of like, why would you want to do that? That's just not, that's somebody else's job. Research science is about making those discoveries. And 
I'll tell you, there's nothing like that feeling of getting someplace in your research where you realize that you have learned something about the nature of the universe that nobody else knows yet. You've made that discovery. And it's such an exciting feeling. That's wonderful. And there's people for whom that should be the only thing they're doing because that's what they're really good at. But for all that's fun, um, we, we can't afford in this society to leave science in the ivory tower anymore. Look at what's happening with the rejection of science between climate change denial on the right, anti-vaxxing and GMO objections on the left. I mean, we have a lot of places where good solid science is just being ignored and written off to the detriment of society. And um, the, the younger generation of scientists is recognizing this. So when I came through, nobody was leaving you know, leaving the ivory tower meant that you hadn't been able to cut a desert research, you had to take a lower status job. That's all it meant. I, we've got a generation of scientists going through Caltech now, and I'm seeing in a lot of other places, that are like, this is the future of society, this is the future of this world. I mean, climate change, what's coming with climate change is so huge, and the science is being ignored. I think it's helping the scientists get out of their tower and recognize that the community Community itself is imperiled by ignorance about what the science can do. And it's changing the ideas that the younger scientists have about community engagement. So the main thing I want to do, and that we've started with, is how to help other scientists be there. And I think that's what most people, I said, at the end of the career, you look at your legacy, it's how to train others to keep it going forward. So we, we talked for many years and you finally retired. And when you retired, we implemented something we've talked about for a long, a long time, time, which is a non-profit, right? You had the yeah. option to go be a consultant. I know a couple of people approached you or go work for government somewhere else. Yeah. But we said, maybe there's more credibility and more ability to serve community by being a non-profit. Right. I, I, you know, one of the challenges with scientific information right now is the feeling that people are buying it. And the idea of science should be that you can't buy it, that the data in the end trumps everything. But... The reality is, you know, it could take quite a few experiments before you really figure something out, and things do get corrupted. And the impression of that connected to corporate funding is large enough that it really felt like we needed to, to find a way of independence. What I had at the city, you know, when I was in L.A., one of the things I, I often said is the price of getting me for free is that the mayor actually got me, and he couldn't control political, you know, there was no political control on what I said. Right. right. If I you was, disagreed, you would. If I had disagreed, I would have been saying it, you know. And that was made it a lot harder for the mayor, but it gave it a huge level of credibility. And how do we continue to do that? And so we started the nonprofit center for science and society, and and um, that's where we we worked with SCAG. We worked with we tried to replicate and seed what we did in LA with the other over 190 jurisdictions in Southern California, and we got. Good engagement for over three dozen, almost 40 uh, cities have pursued and uh, taken a path towards building greater resilience to the earthquake. And we've got several more that are already passed their, their retrofitting uh -huh. legislation, more that are working on it now, and I think we'll be passing it this year. So we're seeing it replicate out. Right. And, um, and that's great. That's the community engagement piece. But there's the community of scientists that you have special space in uh, providing leadership that 
I, even though I want to empower that community just as much as you do, I know that I don't have the scientific background to be able to do that. So, but I don't have the community background to really be able to teach it. So we've come together. We've been teaching. We had a workshop on science activation. Right. It's going to be turning into a longer course here at Caltech. We're looking at taking it elsewhere. And the idea of science activation is that science communication alone is not enough. Right? People, a lot of people talk about what bad communicator scientists are. We need to be trained to do a better job of communication. And communication is great and essential and insufficient. Because communication is one way. It's I have information and I've got to do a better job of, of de delivering it to you. Science activation is a bilateral process. Solution to difficult problems. Don't come because I threw my information at you. Even if I threw my information at a way to make sure you could understand it, finding a solution requires a lot more nuance than that. It trades off the scientific information. What are the actual facts with what the community needs, what the community wants, what the community can afford. All of those things have to play into coming up with solutions to difficult problems. But if you don't have the science as part of it, you can come up with solutions that are actually gonna make things worse because you don't know whether or not something actually works. And that's what the science gives you. Science is a process of determining what's physically true. So if you wanna you know, stop X, let's, you know, if we wanna not fall down in earthquakes, you need to be understanding really what earthquakes you're subjected to at what sort of rate, what, you know, and then this is, all right, we need to get rid of this building. What time frame? Well, that's trading off information about how often the earthquakes happen, what we do or don't know, and the reality is, is you know, the, the timing of them is random. So you might invest now and nothing's gonna happen for 30 years or 50 years or 100 years, or it could be tomorrow. So how do you take that understanding and now make that social political decision about what money do we invest now versus the other things we need to spend money on. And I think balancing the political realities. I think that what you acknowledged earlier about working with the mayor's office uh, and the political lessons that you learned just in some simple conversations, it's rare that a scientist gets the opportunity to be in ac with access to deputy mayors or the mayor yeah. to have that learning and so I think you bringing that to these courses allows the younger emerging scientists and we're not talking kids these are people in their, their mid 20s to late 20s or I mean, into their 30s into their 30s who are who are adults who have a passion for change and a community and how do you give them the tools and so I think you bring that that scientific credibility and I think we we together have been able to educate them and provide that experience I know that we uh, bring policymakers to scientists we bring scientists to the policymakers in a way to make sure that the understanding of how the other community works allows for the ex the reciprocal community to be able to be better supportive of that community. And I think it's because we already have the connections, because we've been engaging with the community. The elected officials trust us right. to come and do this. Um, the scientists are trusting us because I already have the connections there. We've, we've demonstrated expertise, uh, which is what matters to a scientist. And, and so putting those two things together and making use of the community has been um, exciting. Because I think, you know, the, the class we did, we had three times as many students apply as we could take. We had all of these elected officials saying, let me do it again if you're, you know, when you do it again, make sure you invite me, which I, I thought we would be using up political capital bringing them in. And it turns out that they were really excited with the chance to connect with Caltech scientists.
And I think that I think elected officials are excited to connect with experts that sure. that they can count on to enhance the policies they're trying to implement. And that they can trust to be impartial. Right. Because oftentimes the information they're getting, even if it's uh, expert, sometimes becomes uh, slanted based on who the source is. Right. And so I think there's more need for that repository of information that can be trusted and is impartial, like at an institution like Caltech, Caltech. or any of these. We have, I mean, tremendous academic institutions across this country that could be mm -hmm. providing this service to local electeds and national elect or federal electeds as well. And, and I do see it starting. I was visiting out at Cornell and they have a project on flood resilience where they've been working with the local flood managers. And it's this, it, it seemed some of the same sort of ideas that we've tried to pursue of long-term development of relationships right. becoming that trusted source that they can turn to for information. And, um, but it's still at this point, I think, more the exception than the norm in the academic communities. Uh, but it's shifting. Right. We, we're recognizing that things are changing in our society. Well, we talk about, I mean, this is engagement in its truest sense. This is just the engagement of scientists with policymakers. And that engagement can be, you know, outreach from the scientists. I send you a flyer or a, a letter with information right. just one way once. Then there's transactional. And we, we look at this as sort of like that Maslow's, like a Maslow's hierarchy, getting up to true engagement, it's actually getting up to true activation. And it starts with outreach, and then you get to transactional, then you have uh, this interaction that's engagement, but activation is the goal. And I think there's a movement towards that. I think there's a desire on both sides yeah. for activation. I need to put that in class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence, and for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.